Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. When this pandemic lockdown began, AJC took our programming online. To date, our videos have racked up over 2 million views on Facebook. You can find our upcoming programs and videos of our past programs at AJC.org AdvocacyAnywhere. As part of Advocacy Anywhere, this week I moderated a conversation between Batya Unger-Sargon, the opinion editor of The Forward, and Seth Mandel, the executive editor of the Washington Examiner magazine. The program was called The Changing U.S. Political Landscape and What's at Stake for American Jews. We are pleased to bring you some of that program now. Yesterday, AJC's National Leadership Council received an exclusive briefing from Dr. Len Schleifer, the CEO of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. And toward the end of the call, he made the point, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting you here, Len, he made the point that part of why America hasn't been a world leader in responding to the coronavirus crisis, far from it, is because our political polarization has had almost a, a paralyzing effect on the ability of our government to address the primary and secondary issues coming from the pandemic. Put differently, in a certain sense, our political divide is literally making us sick. So just to lay some groundwork, I, I want to start by asking each of you, how did we get here? How is it that the country that dominated the last century now seems at times like it could tear itself apart? Batya, let's begin with you. I am a bit of a polarization skeptic. And uh, what I mean by that is I think that when you look around at our nation more generally, this polarization effect that is so clear to us on Twitter, that is so clear in Congress and in the Senate and so clear in the media actually really evaporates as soon as you get out of these sort of centers of chattering class and political classes, which is just to say that the tragedy of the polarization in our nation's elites is so much greater because it truly is leaving you know, our nation behind in the dust. We are actually much less polarized as a nation than we have ever been in our history. Polling shows that as a nation, we have never been more united than we are over the major issues that this nation was founded on. And so it's deeply tragic to see then that in the media and in the political classes, we are at each other's throats, really failing to represent the people that we are supposed to be representing. Seth, do you uh, kind of agree with that formulation? Do you want to take a stab at the original question or, or you also disagree with my premise here? I think that body is basically right. I think the problem is that there's a perception of partisanship, but that perception of partisanship actually has a real effect on what's happening and what goes on and, and the formation of policy and things like that. You have leaders in alternative media in, in, in party affiliated or party associated media that make a lot of noise. That noise then gets picked up uh, by the rest of us in the mainstream media and we sort of broadcast it out and it makes it look and sound like there's a real divide here. But in reality on the important thing, which is compliance, that divide wasn't really there. It was just an argument we were having in public. But that's what a democracy is. We were having the argument in public and the lockdown side, the restrictions were winning the argument. 
and both sides more or less complied with the ramifications of that. So in some ways, I do really think it's healthier than it looks, but I worry that if we're formulating policy and we're having these national conversations based on the perception of division, then the reality matters less than it should. So we need to somehow find a way to have the leaders in Congress, in media, those who set the national debate reflect the same level of division or lack thereof as the general public. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the vanishing center, whether it's actually vanishing kind of out in the districts or it's only vanishing maybe in the halls of Congress. To Seth's last point, right, that might matter more or still matter, even if the folks back home kind of still get along. But if we're talking about the vanishing center, the center makes me think of consensus issues. Um, Fighting anti-Semitism and supporting Israel both used to be consensus issues. And I think that in some ways, they're both disappearing. Maybe the, the consensus support for Israel is disappearing a little more obviously than the consensus support for fighting anti-Semitism. But I think you would both agree that people are trying to instrumentalize the fight against anti-Semitism uh, in a way that's, that's really unhelpful. So Seth, we'll start with you. Why are consensus issues like this disappearing? The issue that I always return to as something that uh, looks better than the American Jewish community's response by comparison is what happened with Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. And on the eve of the election, there was a poll that 87% of British Jews considered him anti-Semitic. And I just remember thinking that that's as close as a consensus as I can ever remember. I mean, I think the reverse was when maybe Ehud Olmert had like a 5% uh, approval rating or something, and you had 95% of Israelis agreeing. It wasn't a very happy moment. So anytime you have a country's Jews almost at 90% agreeing on something, that's unity, that's a form of achdus. And it also means that the political ramifications were not what was important. I had people telling me, hey, look, I'm a lifelong labor member. I'm not leaving the party, but I'm canvassing for bars. I'm going to go door to door and tell people, vote for the Tories. I have never voted for a Tory, but I'm going to be out there. Uh, And so the community was able to basically hit pause. T, as my kid says, when they're running around the yard, right, and they're about to get caught in tag or something. The community was basically able to say, all right, set that aside, let's take care of this, and then you know we'll go back to the way we were. We don't have the same sense of an American Jewish community in America. We have much more of an Americanized version of that. And America itself, you see this in everything, is, well, first of all, I think we're a bit more tribal. The centralization of authority is not really a thing here. Mm-hmm. We don't have a chief rabbi. Uh, and so we don't really have a way to speak with one voice. And it's just a very Americanized version that there are good aspects of that. There are bad aspects of that. The bad aspects include a marked inability to come together in a time of crisis and just put everything aside. You're both editors of publications, which rightly or wrongly are associated with a certain political viewpoint. And each of you try to feature voices outside of your own political camp. As editors, what is your responsibility to give your readers what they want versus kind of making them take their medicine and hear dissenting views? And Batya, maybe we'll stick with you. I can tell you my philosophy of running an opinion section. I'm the opinion editor at The Forward. 
And I have a philosophy um, and it goes like this. I believe that there are sort of three main mandates to running an opinion section and each one is sort of amped up in the age of Trump. So the first is to raise up the voices of the people currently disenfranchised by the power structures, people you don't hear from. So in our case, that's, you know, because our audience is, you know, largely liberal. So that means conservative Jews, Republican Jews, people who voted for Trump, Orthodox Jews. It also means Black Jews. It means Muslims. It means Palestinians. It means settlers. We don't hear from them a lot. It just really raising up the voices of people who you don't hear from a lot, and particularly people who, I guess settlers don't really fall into this, but who have been disenfranchised in some way, who who are sort of not empowered to speak usually in the means that we are used to hearing people. You don't turn on MSNBC and see them. The second mandate, I believe, is to reflect the full breadth of legitimate opinion relevant to our community. But that is where the sort of proportion comes in, right? So 70% of American Jews are Democrats. Does that mean 70% of my op-eds are going to be on the left or liberal-leaning or Democrat? I mean, I do strive to that. I strive to accurately reflect the community in the pages. And then the third mandate is, you know, to honestly challenge myself, the editorial point of view, and my readers in good faith. And that's really the hardest thing is getting a piece that the reader will interpret as challenging them in good faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, Seth, what about your work at The Examiner? One thing you have to understand is that different publications have different brands. The editorial side, we'll see that as what we, we would call that a mission. And the general public would probably call it a brand. And the confusion of the two is something that often gets in the way of what we're trying to do. So I was opinion editor at the New York Post before this, and I would see people on Twitter share these things like critical of Trump in the New York Post. And they'd go, you know, even the New York Post or, you know, when you've lost the New York Post or something, it's like, if the New York Post wanted a Trumpist editorial section, they wouldn't have hired me to, you know, run it. And we, we sort of get the same, we make the same jokes at the Examiner where there's a problem in the readership of journalism, I think across the board, in that there's a lack of context, that people don't really like context and they don't really like injecting it into things. And so people will take one article and say, oh, that whatever publication says this, you know, stuff like that. And you can make an argument I could go through Batya's newspaper and build a case that it is a right-wing publication. It's obviously not a right-wing publication, but if I wanted to, I could do that. You know, and that's why you also have people who are on the conservative side who sometimes complain that you know, we have moved left at the Examiner because you have a high-profile story that everybody shares, and it tends to be this one that is a defining issue for a lot of readers. And so they don't care that there's these three other stories on the homepage mm -hmm. that say something else. What they care about is like this huge story we're all looking at, Russia collusion, right? I don't care where the examiner comes down on the carried interest loophole. I don't care where the examiner you know, comes down on sin taxes. I care much more about where it comes down or what it thinks of the Russia collusion stuff or the Ukraine stuff, or what, right? So you know, we tend to do this one big issue thing and everything else just sort of floats away and you end up having a lack of context. And one thing that editors do, Batya and myself both try to do as well as the editors of the other publications that everybody out there is reading is 
cover all of the issues relevant right to the audience and things that should be relevant and get them the information they want to know. But when you go on the internet, you see the cherry picking and it, there's like 5% of America is on Twitter or something, but 99.99% of those are journalists and politicians. So the narrative gets set with these ridiculous fights that go on on Twitter and the rest of the country has no idea that it's even happening. With that, let me just uh, personally say thank you, Batya. Thank you, Seth. Thank you uh, for having us. Thank you so much for having me. As we commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II this year, the focus has very much been on survivors' testimonies and making sure the horrors of the Holocaust are not forgotten. We focus on the atrocities, the lives lost, the lives forever altered. For some, who 75 years later are still putting the pieces back together, that includes recovering the art and family heirlooms looted by the Nazis that have made their way to museums, galleries, and living room walls, and returning them to the rightful owners, or at least their heirs. With us to discuss this mission is Dr. Wesley Fisher, Director of Research for the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany and World Jewish Restitution Organization, and Olaf Osman, the lawyer for the heirs of Richard Semmel, a family in South Africa who has been fighting since 1999 to recover art. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you both. Um, Dr. Fisher, let's start by explaining to listeners how many works of art were stolen by Nazis during the war and how many still remain unrecovered or in limbo, if you will. This is the greatest theft in history, greatest theft cultural property in history. It involves millions of objects. Usually the focus is on high art, and there have been some estimates about that, but in fact, no one really knows the full number. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clearly in the millions because if one looks at the archival records of what was returned even from, uh, from Germany at the end of the war, that's also in the millions. So you have to understand that this does include also libraries, many books. It includes everything from numismatic collections to Japanese netsuke. It includes also, of course, the high art that people are aware of through the, the press. The, um, the usual numbers that are given are about 500,000 high art paintings that were stolen, of which perhaps 100 to 200,000 are missing. But those were guesses. They were presented at the Washington Conference on Holocaust Era Assets in 1998, and they have stuck since. Mm. That's the usual you know, reply to this question, but in fact, it's much bigger. And where are they landing? Where are you finding these pieces? Ah, these are movable objects. This is movable property. So they are all over the world. Uh, they are primarily in Europe, but not only. If one is looking at questions of many of the artworks, they're also in the former Soviet Union. There are, however, a great many things that are also in the United States, in South America, in Israel, in Australia. Uh, we haven't really investigated what may be in Japan, but that's also an issue. So it's, mm -hmm. it's quite vast. Many of them are in museums. Many of them are in private hands. They are in libraries. They are in various types of collections. Now, Mr. Osman, you represent the heirs of Richard Semmel, a Jewish businessman who fled from Berlin to Holland, eventually landed in America, and was forced to sell his sizable art collection. 
Those heirs live in South Africa now, but they have been trying to recover this art collection for the last 30-some years. Can you tell us about the challenges you and the family have faced? I think that the Semmel collection from Richard Semmel, who formerly lived in Berlin, is a good example for what Wesley meant with uh, its spread all over the world. Because we know from a couple of auctions that took place during 1933 and 1945, not initiated by, by Samuel himself, who was on the flight already. And you have to have in mind that the Samuel flew to Cuba and via Netherlands to Cuba and ended up in New York where he died in 1950. So he had no time and no possibility to take all his papers, his proofs, his stuff, anything with him. So the heirs of Richard Semmel have been faced with the situation that they couldn't even prove the ownership of their own house in Berlin, actually mm. right after the war. Mm-hmm. So this was the obvious first task uh, they, they had to go through. Uh, was in, in 1946, 1947, to go to the uh, uh, administration in Berlin and, and to look into the papers, what, what happened with their family home in, in berlin Dahlem at this time. And it took... Right after 1990, when they opened up archives in the East and in Russia, including, to prove that how this villa changed hands from Mr. Semmel into the hands of the guy called uh, Kühne, who was quite close with the, uh, the Nazi government and, and uh, could buy this for, for less than 100,000 Reichsmark at the time. And we could prove this, but it was too late to recover the, the villa. But at this time, we found proof about uh, the, the, the company and we found proof about the textile company he owned in Berlin and stuff like this. So this is how I came in contact with the family because um, they hired a South African lawyer. And this, uh, for this lawyer, it was even impossible to find the correct place for the company because numbers changed, names of the street changed, everything changed. And there is a, a quite large number of archives just to find out who was the owner? When did it change? How did it change? You needed text files and stuff like this. So we sorted out everything out of this, and this took us more than 10 years to, to finalize this claim. Wow. And right from the beginning, the grandchild of the, the last life companion of, of uh, Mr. Semmel, she always spoke about that she was walking through this nice villa in berlin Dahlem and remembered all these paintings, because there was one wing with what she called, as a small child, some, some dark old paintings. <laughs> this was the wing from the Dutch masters. And mm-hmm. the other one was the more friendly one. These were, had been the, the uh, classic modern, as we say today, from France. But we started with almost no paper, no proof, nothing. What we tried to find was a proof that this collection itself existed in, in the first way. And we found out that there was a collection, and we know now it's about 120 paintings, so, and we, we, we just started to look one after the other. And the best case is always when one of the paintings appears on the art market. Mr. Osman, do you find that institutions play by the rules set up at the Washington Conference and still stand by the principles behind it? As Wesley said, in the Washington Conference, the general idea was to identify artwork. This was stolen by the Nazis on one way or the other. So all, all this uh, should be investigated in, and if some artwork is found, then it should be returned to the, the heirs, if one can find them, or to organizations like the, 
United Restitution Organization because it shouldn't stay in the hands of the perpetrators. I'm almost sure that most of the countries that signed in 1998 had no idea about the number of artwork that's involved. Yeah. And yeah, countries like Germany, Switzerland, and, and others uh, found out very fast. I think it took one year, two years, that uh, um, I think the, the, the head of the Dresden collection was it who said that half of his collection would be empty if he mm. would follow the Washington Prince. More and more archives are open to the public. More and more collections are open to the public, so we, we can search in, we can, we can uh, compare information from different sources, and finally, uh, if some artwork appears on the market, then even Christie's and Sotheby's now contact the representatives or the family or, or whatever to get a solution out of it. What about the art out there for which the provenance is completely unknown? Well, as Ola Bosman has been saying, after the Washington Conference in 1998, there was interest or an attempt to look at what was in museums. The problem was that museums were looking at their collections as they, are, as they were at the time or as they are today. We at the Claims Conference and the World Jewish Restitution Organization felt that this was simply not enough because so many things had gone into private hands, had gone elsewhere throughout the world, had been lost for one, may have been destroyed for one reason or another. And we therefore decided that we should, as a test matter, go back to the original archives of looting. So we began to look at the archives of the largest agency, Nazi agency, uh, the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg or the ERR, which worked outside the Reich. And we began to put those archives together. Now, in terms of the scattered archives, note that this one agency, is its records are in 29 different archives in 10 different countries. The largest collection was in Kiev. We, went, we started to scan all of this to make it possible to look at this. And these are, in fact, some of the main records in regard to France and Belgium and, and the like. It's not so much in Germany because they were, they were taking things outside of the Reich. And we eventually put together a database on what was stored at the, or what was processed at the Jeu de Pomme, which is next to the Louvre. Uh, and uh, indeed, that proved, when we put it online in 2010, that proved to be a major change because it was the first time that you could see what was taken, from whom it was taken, and what the fate of the object was. But in this instance, it was shown to be so useful because it, in fact, identified a series of things that were in the, also the Louvre and also the, the Centre Pompidou and, and in France and such, but also things such as uh, items that were in the University of Oklahoma and many, many other things uh, throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Under these circumstances, we have decided that this, in fact, was working well and that we should expand it to try to do what was originally wanted in the Washington Conference, namely a comprehensive database of all objects that were taken and from whom they were taken and what their fate was. Mm -hmm. We have just begun that in a major way uh, through something called the Jewish Digital Cultural Recovery Project. We have not put this in the media so far because of the pandemic because of the coronavirus pandemic and our senses that it was not appropriate to 
deal with this in quite this, this form at this time. But as a practical matter, this is a large project that is funded in part by the European Union, and it involves a large number of major organizations in at, at the moment in Western Europe. Um, hopefully, that will in fact be something that in future years will answer some of the questions that people very often have, including yourself, I believe, namely, you know, can you show me you know, what was taken? Now, which countries who have this art in their possession have not cooperated with the principles of the Washington Conference? This is very large. If we start to list all the countries that have not done anything or that have made things difficult in various ways, it's a very long list. So this essentially what Olaf Osman is referring to in regard to the Netherlands or others is, is very great throughout. I must say, I assume that Olaf Osman will be talking a bit about this question of the balance of interest issue in the Netherlands, because there's a case where uh, there's an instance in which we have been trying to deal with the Dutch government on the point because of a policy matter that has affected specifically one of his cases, but is generally problematic, not only for that specific case, but across the board. Oh, please, Mr. Osman, please, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, as Wesley said, the Netherlands have been one of the first countries who established a, a committee. What has to do with just a single person in the Netherlands, Mr. Eckhart, who was taking care of our topic even before the Washington conference took place. So it, he found in the, in the old documents of the Netherlands that the Allied forces sent a whole train with artwork belonging to Jews from the Netherlands or confiscated in the Netherlands back to the Netherlands and with the simple task to distribute this to the original owners, what they never did. And what existing today is what they call the National Collection of the Netherlands. And this National Collection consists of all these artworks that should be distributed to the Jews. Hmm. And if you see some papers from, from the 50s and 60s, you see that several former arts collectors uh, tried to recover some artwork in, in the Netherlands and got some strict answers that there is nothing left. Then They got some small thumbs in some cases. That's it. So, and when in 2002, the restitution committee was uh, um, established by, by the Minister of Culture, they did a strange thing in my view because the, uh, the person in the Minister of Culture who is responsible for taking care that no artwork with value for the uh, a nation has to leave the country. It's the same person who has to take care of this restitution committee. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I have the, the, the strange situation that um, the, the, the legal advisor of, of this committee is, is party in my case. So uh, um, he, he's sitting opposite me for, for the present owner, for the, for the national collections and stuff. Okay. That, that's one of the problems. The next problem is that this committee gave themselves the rules and criteria to decide. It was not taken, as in other countries, by uh, governmental uh, institutions or by even by parliaments and, and stuff like this. They could do it by their own. And the last uh, president from this commission was very inventive and started to add several criteria to the existing Washington principles. And one of the worst is that they started a weighting of interest between the present owner and the former owner. And actually not even the former owner, but the, the actual claimants today. 
So you have the situation that you're sitting uh, next to the representative of a museum in Utrecht, for instance, and, and uh, of course this poor guy, director of this museum, has the task to tell the restitution committee that the painting you are asking for your client is the most important of his whole collection, of course. Uh, otherwise, you would have a legal problem with the, the museum he's working for if he wouldn't argument like this. So, so he's, he's taking this and, and then he's, the president from the commission looked at me and said, what about your client? So, and, and when you start to explain that uh, this artwork was taken from the family 80 years back, so how could this family have a close emotional connection to this painting today? It's, it's simply impossible. So this weighting of interest between the former owner and the present owner will always end up in a decision in favor of the, of the uh, present owner. Interesting, interesting. What are the expectations? I mean, I imagine that for some, just an acknowledgement of where this came from and what its origins are would be enough. For others, they want that art back. For others, they just want compensation for that art. I mean, I imagine there are various degrees, right? Unfortunately, the press tends to look at the very expensive works of art. Mm -hmm. But in fact, most things are not of that sort. And generally, these are objects which have tremendous meaning because they are very often the only things that remain to a family after a genocide. Mm -hmm. Recall that this is not just simply a theft. This is a theft followed by murder. And that is, from that standpoint, this is a much different situation than simple art theft. Mm -hmm. In that regard, I have to say that the meaning of all this has been made greater in recent years because of the passing of the uh, Holocaust survivors. The generation is now passing, and some of the reason why, as Olaf Osman was saying, things go on to the art market, into the auction houses and the like, is because of the passing of generations and the fact that people now start putting things onto the art market that were in their attics or in their grandparents' homes or whatever the case may be. Dr. Fisher, you just touched on this, but I asked this question of both of you. 75 years after the end of World War II, why does this issue of artwork matter now? This is a question of the objects that have remained. They are the little ghosts that are still among us. And from that standpoint, this is an unsolved part of the Holocaust. In some respects, it may be good that it's unsolved because it means that Holocaust education may be able to continue using the objects as well as the archives and various testimonies and the like. Mm -hmm. Mr. Osman? Yeah, if you look at families like the Semmel family, for them, they had no chance to get anything back from her old life. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mr. Semmel himself died poorly in New York in 1950, and some friends from Berlin had to pay for his funeral, finally, because mm -hmm. this man had no penny at all at the end. So for the family, it's a question of identity, of course, because the generation, I'm, I'm speaking now with the fourth generation, after Mr. Semmel, and they, of course, they want to know what happened, why it happened, and we can use, and I agree with Wesley, we can use this also to tell the stories of these families, what happened, why it happened, and who acts in what favor, and even for the art market, it should be an example of how you never again should work with uh, subjects of art again. Mm -hmm. We will bring back the names 
We, we also can tell for, for Berlin, for instance, the story of the old collectors, because most of these collectors also are contributors to the museums. There was a close connection between each and everything. And, and yes, of course, we have to solve this problem. And it's not good for a community in complete to base the present life on life like this. This will never survive. And, and some has to tell the story. Well, Dr. Fisher, Mr. Osman, thank you so much for joining us and telling us this part of the story that is so rarely talked about. And we really do appreciate you shedding some light on it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So, Sefi, at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about why our family is still taking abundant health precautions. Even as the sun finally comes out and beckons us to parks and playdates, even as countries like Israel and states like Texas return to their cafes and beauty parlors, my state remains in lockdown. I've been watching Israel since this all started, the harsh restrictions the country placed on travelers and citizens alike. In hindsight, they don't seem so harsh now, but I'm also watching closely as these restrictions gradually lift. Schools are expected to return to normal on Sunday. Gyms are open as long as customers don't register a fever. Chefs hope to reopen their restaurants as early as next week, with diners seated several feet apart and hand sanitizer on every table. But I'm also watching as the deadly hatred of Israel escalates and the measures Israel takes to defend itself end in heartbreak. At the end of a recent mission to arrest terrorists in the West Bank, 21-year-old Staff Sergeant Amit Benigal lost his life when a Palestinian youth lobbed a large rock at his head from above. Palestinian youth, that refers to someone's child, whose life, once he's charged, will be ruined too. It is so heartbreaking. There was this brief period where cooperation and compromise became the political imperative, where the priority of keeping people alive became universal. Now, it seems everyone has retreated back to their corners, and the chaos of constant combat has escalated once again. Meanwhile, there's this other chaos of combat, this virus we don't know how to control. Scientists say we won't have a vaccine until early 2021 at best, but once we do, who knows what will prevent otherwise rational people from getting it. This spiral of pessimism is why I'm watching Israel. For 72 years, Israelis have lived in constant combat against an enemy that attacks them simply because they exist. But that's just it. They do more than exist. They live. They enjoy Chaim, life, despite the shadow and threat of Mavet, death. As I watch them cautiously open up to embracing life and each other, I am so hopeful that the warnings of a resurgence will not become reality. I am so hopeful that we can eventually follow their cautious example and enjoy our summer with neighbors, friends, colleagues, and extended family. Until then, my immediate family will continue to make the most out of sheltering in place. Did I mention my five-year-old son is reading to me now? And he rode a bicycle this week for the first time. He only crashed about a dozen times. My son would not have it any other way. This is what we will talk about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, how about your family? Well, even as Israel emerges from many of its coronavirus restrictions, we remain locked down here in the U.S. One central storyline throughout this crisis has been the debate over the behavior of Orthodox Jews. This came to a head a couple of weeks ago when New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio singled out, quote unquote, the Jewish community and rebuked them 
or should I say rebuked us, for not following restrictions. He isn't solely to blame for this perception, however. Many in the media have obsessed over the Haredi population in particular, questioning whether they are flouting the lockdown to pray and study together, endangering their lives and the lives of others. To the extent that there have been Jews who have broken the lockdown, they are deserving of scorn and condemnation. But here's what I think of when I think of the behavior of the Jewish community during this crisis, ranging from totally secular through rigidly orthodox. I think of the overwhelming majority of Jews who have obeyed all restrictions. I think of the swift action taken by rabbis of all denominations to close their synagogues and keep them closed, and to rebuke any few congregants who violate those restrictions. I think of the vast sums of money raised by Jews and Jewish organizations and used to support people whose lives have been turned upside down, or to purchase and distribute protective equipment, or to feed frontline hospital workers who are risking their lives every day. For that matter, I think of the untold number of Jewish doctors and nurses, including dozens who I know personally, who are among those incredibly brave medical professionals. I think of the Jewish families who have lost loved ones, the Jewish people who have died and their surviving family members who haven't been able to safely practice Jewish mourning rituals, like sitting Shiva and saying Kaddish. I think of the Jewish scientists in Israel and in the U.S. who are hard at work attempting to create a vaccine to end this crisis once and for all. I think of the many Orthodox Jews, including Haredi Jews, who represent a tremendously outsized proportion of all blood plasma donors as scientists seek to develop an antibody treatment. This has been a tough road for all of us in America, the Jewish community no less than any other. We have a long way to go. But I'm exceedingly proud of how our community has acted so far. Shabbat Shalom. I couldn't agree more, Sefi. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 